We saw last week the command to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And for those to whom Paul was writing to at that time, that statement would be a little bit different than what we would be experiencing. For they had no New Testament. But they did have the apostles and the apostles' men to teach them the words of Christ. For many then, when, when Paul says, uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, it would bring to mind then the word of salvation. It would bring about his birth, his sinless life, his death and resurrection and his ascension. It would bring to mind his cross his dying in their place, atoning for their sins. And for those of succeeding generations, it would be what was written in the gospel and the letters. But for us as well as for them, it, it should be both. We should remember then the saving word of Christ, what he has done for us. And what he has done for us should be something that we think of every single day. It should have a place in our daily thoughts. We dare not say salvation is the milk. We've outgrown that. We're in for meat and we're on a major level now. Because we never outgrow the gospel. We need to hear the truth about what Christ has done for us every single day. And if we think that we don't need to do that, then perhaps we've forgotten that we're still sinners. And every day we need to go to the cross. Then, as well, the Word, the Gospel, the whole of Scripture should be Something that is on our thoughts. Something dwelling in us. Brought to us and in us by the Holy Spirit. Who gives us not only hearing, but also the receiving. And in the receiving is the understanding as well. The word of Christ should dwell in us lavishly. Abundantly. That word, as Hebrews would tell us, to be mixed with faith. In all wisdom. Now, again, Scripture makes it very clear there's a difference between wisdom and knowledge. And we can say very succinctly, perhaps, that, that wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. You can have a whole lot of knowledge, but if you don't have wisdom to help you apply that, then that knowledge is kind of useless. And so when he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, it's not to be some kind of haphazard collection of, of mismatched verses. It is a regarding of the word as well as a remembering of the word. In Psalm 1 and verse 2, it reminds us of the godly person whose delight is in the law of the Lord and on that law he meditates 
day and night. Or as Jesus said and made clear in John chapter 5 and verse 39, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they that testify of me. In John chapter 20 and verse 31. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And of course, those familiar verses from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. There is no reason on the face of the earth that we should not daily be into his word. Now these things are not just for our own sake. Uh, I think that's kind of a thing that came about, especially as we got into the 60s and into the 70s, that, that, well, all I need is to get over by myself with my Bible. I don't need anything else. Which flies in the face of what uh, the, the Lord died for in the first place. He didn't die for you to go off and read your Bible by yourself. He died for the church, the assembly, of his people. Yes, he died for each and every one of us who believes individually, yes, but that we would be gathered together as a body of believers. It's not just for our own sake. If we go to chapter 3 of, of Colossians, in verse 16, where it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. But notice this teaching. And admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Teaching and admonishing one another. This is the blessing of the assembly. And by the way, this is also part of keeping the commandment of loving thy neighbor. That we know the word of God and we're able to converse back and forth on the word of God. That we can teach and we can admonish. That word admonish could be best understood by the word warn. And notice the major medium he gives for this here. Teaching and admonishing one another in what? In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We are called to warn and to instruct each other mutually. In a major way that shows itself is, is what we sing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, we see the basis for what we sing. And then we see the subject, <coughs> excuse me, the foundation, which is the word of Christ. Keep that in mind. That all our singing in this place or any other church should be founded in the word 
of God rightly given. The word of Christ. We're to, what are we to sing? We're to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Finally, how are we to sing it? He says to sing it with grace in our hearts to the Lord. Singing is communication. Every song, whether we hear it on the radio or whether we sing it from a hymn book, is trying to communicate something. Unless it's some of the later Beatles songs, which are far past any comprehension. But singing is a form of communicating. Every song is communicating something. And when we enter into the realm of church music, we enter into a realm that is not frivolous and it is not trivial. What we communicate in it is very important and how we communicate it is just as important. So Paul would tell the Corinthians when it came to singing this in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the Spirit. And I will also pray with understanding. And I won't load up my prayers with a bunch of gibberish and say that's my prayer language. And then I will sing with the Spirit. And I will also sing with the understanding. That is, by the Spirit of God, I'm going to know what it is that I'm singing. And if it's from the Spirit of God, guess what? The Holy Spirit is known as what? The Spirit of Truth. So if I sing with the Spirit, then I am singing in lockstep with the truth. There's a moral aspect to almost all communication. And what we speak and how we speak, notice we're told to speak the truth in love. So what are we to speak? The truth. How are we to do it? In love. That's how we are to say it. Hebrews 12 and verse 28 not only tells us that we must worship. And that word to serve God acceptably. That means to worship. Service. That's why we call it a worship service. And how we do it, with reverence and godly fear. fear. Now music, it's, it's a big and it's a very important subject. And music is something God created. You can go back to Genesis and find where music was first, where first it first began. So if God created music, then music is good. But hear me on this now. God did not create specific types of musical expression. While he created music, he did not create different types of musical expression. Man did that. So whether it be Gregorian chants or jazz 
or rock and roll or pop or bluegrass or country and western. People created those genres, not God. So taste and style are human additions. Taste and style are human additions. That's very important for us to understand. Taste and style are not that which God has instructed or commanded. And the devil has delighted in in using one of God's gifts to divide the church. That so often we hear disgruntled folks saying, that's just not my taste. That's not to my taste. We've all grown up in an age where music has permeated our existence. This is something that unites all the generations here. There's not one generation here except for Virgin that can say we never had music that we could listen to. And even she had it. She just had to crank it up on the 78s. But we've had it from the oldest to the youngest, whether it was 45s or LPs or 8-tracks or cassettes or CDs or MP3s, whether it be radio or television or podcasts or streaming. We all have been permeated by music. And today, you can surround yourself only with the music you want to by whatever you stream, except for when you go into Food Lion, and then you have to listen to stuff you really would never otherwise have listened to. You know, I don't think they want to play something pleasant that you'd want to stay around, but what they play that just makes you want to get out of there as quickly as I possibly can. The music industry is amazing in its size and its scope, and it is growing. In 2020, the music industry in the United States grossed $5.6 billion. But in 2021, it grew by 27% to $8 billion. Globally, the music industry last year raked in $23.1 billion. The consumerism that is behind music has had a painful effect in the church. Churches now have praise bands and pre-recorded tracks and music that's no longer a background, but it's in the foreground, so you can hardly hear what anybody's singing, or if anybody's singing. There are actually churches that have been... uh, brought up on charges of disturbing the peace because there's music so loud their communities are hearing it. And they're not hearing singing. They're hearing hearing amplified music of all kinds. Then we hear words like, well, that's not my kind of music from both young and old and in between. And we have seen the Line of worship here and entertainment here. We've seen that line get continually more and more blurred. 
As of 2017, there were 1,400 Christian gospel music stations in the U.S. With those who listened, averaging about nine hours per week per listener. And with music sales of $500 million. But the trouble is, for most people listening to that, they can't, uh, they can't differentiate in their mind. They're listening to entertainment. That's what it's all about. It's entertainment, something to keep you entertained as you ride along. But the trouble is, the line gets blurred, and somehow it seems to drive how worship is to take place. And so this verse calls us back to reality. Friends, who is it that we worship? We worship God. How do we worship God? The way that he has commanded. Remember the sons of Aaron? Nadab and Abihu? What happened to them? Well, they said, you know what, God has instructed, that's all right, but you know, we could probably add a little bit to this. The incense that God had, well, God has it in mind for incense, well, that's nice, but if we add a little bit of cinnamon, wow, that's going to make it even smell that much better. And so what did they do? They offered unto what God calls unto him strange fire, meaning it was something he never commanded them to do. And what did he do? He killed them. And somehow we read that and say, well, that happened in the Old Testament. And, Aha, you know, the terrible thing happened, but you know. And when Aaron went to say something to Moses, remember, Moses said to God, to those who come before me, I will be hallowed. You see, he didn't want his priest coming up with all kinds of ideas different from what God had given is worship. If we're worshiping God and he has told us how he wants us to worship and we come up with some other way, that's not good. It's not good for anybody. So who is it we worship? We worship God. How do we do it? The way he commanded. If you'll note, sometimes at the beginning of a psalm, there's often a little bit of information about the psalm and sometimes it is the instrument that it is to be played on and some also have words describing how it is to be sung. But you can see from the instruments that God chose to have in the, in, in the, to accompany that psalm that they were to be way into the background. The words, the words were to be in the forefront. We don't really communicate in music notes that much. We can communicate mood and, and that sort of thing. But the words are what we have to have to the forefront. Perhaps you might remember the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment tells us that we are not to take the Lord's name in vain. And for many people, they say, the Lord's name in vain. Oh, well, that means we're not to put, uh, say, we're not supposed to curse with God's name. Well, 
That's only a little part of that commandment. To take the Lord's name in vain means to make it empty, to diminish it. And God has always been zealous about the glory of his name. So to take the Lord's name in vain means anything that diminishes the glory of his name. Anything that is mentioned along with his name that's not true or makes him to be less than he is. You notice at the end of that commandment, it says this, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So we have to be very careful even with what we sing because we need to be accurate in what it is that we sing. Otherwise, we break the fourth commandment. So in light of the fourth commandment, all of us are commanded to know what it is that we are singing, that it is true, and that it is God-honoring. We must for certainly get that right. I'll ask you, do you think as a body of believers we've come to a perfect place in our worship? That we sing perfect praise to God? I don't think anybody here would raise their hand and say, yeah, we, we, we're there. We're working towards it. We're trying to get there. We're using whatever means we can find that are godly to, to get there. But you realize if you look at the book of Psalms, the songs of the Old Testament, if you will, and the songs for the church, there are 150 psalms. That's 150 songs. Now if you add to the New Testament, if the Old Testament gets 150 songs, what should the New Testament get? Maybe double that? There are myriad, a myriad of, of hymns and spiritual songs that take their words and thoughts right out of the, the Word of God. For about two weeks in a row, we sang one that was a, a paraphrase of Psalm 90. Uh, it was number 28 in the hymn book, O God, the Rock of Ages. O God, the rock of ages, who evermore has been, what time the tempest rages, our dwelling place serene. Before thy first creations, O Lord, the same as now, to endless generations, the everlasting thou. So one of the neat things about the, not only do we read the psalm, we sing the psalm, and in some of the paraphrases of the psalms, we get the meaning of the psalm. And just in this first verse of that one, we learn something very important. Creation didn't change God. God is the same before creation as he is after creation. And it comes right out of the psalm. Now that's the greatness of God and his eternal. In verse 2, our years are like the shadows on the sunny hills that lie. Or grasses in the meadows that blossoms but do die. A sleep, a dream, a story by strangers quickly told. An unremaining glory of things that soon 
are old. See the great contrast between the permanence of God and the greatness of God and the transience of ourselves. O Lord, thou who canst not slumber, whose light grows never pale, teach us aright to number our years before they fail. On us thy mercy lighten, on us thy goodness rest, and let thy spirit brighten the hearts thyself has blessed. A reminder in that truth that God says, I don't sleep or slumber. The light never grows pale for him. The day is the same as night. And so when we sing something like that, that should be a, something that makes us feel good to sing it. And so we see what we are to sing. But he closes it with how we are to do it. It's between singing one another speaking one another in psalms and teaching, with, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. With grace in our hearts, which means there's truth and love in our hearts. Some of you perhaps can identify with me on when it comes to songs that we've heard over the years. I can tell you all the lyrics to Roger Miller's You Can't Roller Skate in a Buffalo Herd. <laughs> but to what avail is it? I guess that's secular entertainment, but it doesn't do me any good to... I can still hear in my mind Tiny Tim singing Tiptoe Through the Tulips. I don't want to hear it, but it is there. See, that's the power of music. It can get in, and it, and a lot of times it just stays with us. I got on the plane this week. The first thing that came to my mind, Merle Haggard singing Silver Wings. Like I said, my mind musically is like a Wurlitzer jukebox at a truck stop that's been closed since the 70s. But you see that power. Some of us, I think, can remember songs that you sang in elementary school. Back in the days when we had music as part of our curriculum in school. That's the power of music. It stays with us. It has that, that amazing quality that a lot of times once it's in there, it's not coming out. Now, if it's, what if we can then fill our minds with songs of truth. David said, God has given me songs in the night. And he wasn't talking about all night radio. He was talking about the fact that there are songs of truth 
that he has rehearsed and sung over and over about the goodness of God, the power of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, so that at night when he feels like perhaps he's been abandoned, these songs cheer him, bring him out of the depths. We know the Scripture tells us about the power of music. Remember, Saul would get in these great depressive fits and be mean and angry, and what would happen? David would come and play his harp. And it would change Saul. We know it has power. And God would have us to to channel that to that which is right and true, especially in his church. And so when we sing with grace in our hearts, it means we're singing with truth and thankfulness in our hearts and with agreement and work of the Holy Spirit. God's great and holy name, Jesus Christ our Lord, God the Holy Spirit, deserve the greatest of praise and the fullest of truth. And this, this should be the joy. You see, the trouble is, America's been duped. And they think, oh yeah, beat. The beat is everything. The sound is everything. Oh, it thrills my soul to hear that that group playing. But what should thrill our souls? That we, in the presence of God, honored him by singing the truth to him. That should thrill our souls. That should be the thing that, that fills us with joy. Because that is truth and that will stay with us when we leave the building. I think it was the cathedrals had a song not too long ago, and I'll probably step on a few toes with this, but they, it talked about moving, 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 moving on to glory, glory land. And they had the high-pitched voice in the middle of it going, moving, and everybody liked it. And so they would constantly repeat that. That's taste. That's people's taste. And we have to remember, again, differentiate that. So you left, when a song like that and and others that we can go into, I can remember being uh, in high school. And Ocean, the group, I think they were a one-hit wonder. Had that song, put your hand in the hand of the man who stilled the waters. Put your hand in the hand of the man who calmed the seas. Take a look at yourself and you can look at others differently by putting your hand in the hand of the man from Galilee. Never mentioned Jesus. And it was a, it, it sold a lot of songs in the 70s, a lot of records in the 70s. See, my mama taught me how to pray before I reached the age of seven. She said, there'll come a time when there'll probably be room in heaven. <laughs> that makes me think of Buford T. Justice saying to his son, when I get home, I'm going to slap your mama.
there'll come a time when there'll probably be room in heaven. Because you prayed. You see what it left out? The, the important, how do you get into heaven? Not by praying, but by embracing Jesus Christ. You see, anytime entertainment comes in, it always blurs the picture because entertainment wants to entertain and sell as much as it can. So we give and seek to give great honor and pleasing praise to the Lord. And that is what worship is all about. Let's stand together for prayer.